but we hold, adhere to this belief so much that we're willing to, you know, see society, even though, you know, if you look, if you look really closely, you can see the inequality. It's, it's quite stark. It's mm. quite in your face, actually. But we are so motivated to hold on to this, this belief that we will, you know, say society is far more equal than it actually is. Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Igor Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science, and we'll be talking about what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in this ever strange 21st century. So, listeners, thank you very much. We've made it to episode six, which I think some people thought, including us, that it might never happen. We are going to be talking about wisdom and equality today, and we're very excited. We have a special guest, Michael Krauss, uh, who is a, has a speciality in the study of hierarchy. Now, normally I introduce guests and kind of get it a bit wrong. So I thought, Michael, just over to you. Can you tell us um, who you are and what you do? So, um, yeah, I'm a social psychologist by training. I study hierarchies. Uh, and, you know, in particular, what that means is I study inequality. I study why, why we have so much of it, why it's hard to change, why it's hard to make things more equal, even though it seems like people want things to be more equal. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that having more equal societies might be good for people. Right. Michael, when I was chatting to Igor in the last couple of days about, you know, what we were going to hit, I said, can we start by just asking Michael what class he's in? Um, and Eagle was like, oh, there's just, there's, <laughs> there's no answer really to that question. I was like, oh, first hurdle. So why, why? <laughs> well, Michael we... and I also disagree on this sometimes. So uh, okay, like, all right. Uh, so, what, yeah. what is, how do you define class? Like, yeah, well, so, my, well, actually, yeah, maybe so Michael could start with that. <laughs> how, to, how to define class? Yeah. So, so, so class is a little bit fuzzy. Right. In part, it's fuzzy in America in particular because it's going to coincide with a number of other demographic factors and social factors. So um, when you talk about class in the United States, first of all, people don't want to talk about it. So, you know, mm. ask me what class I'm in. Yeah, in it's quite States, rude. It's a know, rude question, isn't it's, it? You it's, wouldn't yeah, like, it's, open it's, a dinner party up with that kind of thing. You yeah, know, that's, just sort ourselves into classes and then we can begin. <laughs> that's, you know. <laughs> that's right. Um, uh, so, um, so there's that. And then typically the way I think about it is it's this could be a social cognitive framework, could be a cultural value system, probably all those things that is defined by your external environment that's related to the resources that you experience. So in the, the right. three sort of big categories of those resources are the money that you have, your educational attainment and the socialization factors associated with that. And then your occupation, what you do for a living, your relationship to the material forces of the world. So that, that environment, whatever it is, and it's big and it's variable, creates an approach to the world that we think of as social class. And if with, with those three categories, do people have to sort of be in the same strata across three categories? Or, you know, say, could you, for example, have someone with little education, but who had done very well for themselves, you know, thinking like, I don't know, Jay-Z or something like that. Uh, does he then move into a different class or does it need to be across the board that you sort of do you appreciate the, what I'm driving at there? Does it have to be yeah, three right. for three kind of thing? Right. So, um, you know, they don't quite cohere as well as you might expect, right, for a sort of a unified construct. So it makes it a little fuzzy because 
um, because of that. In, in some ways, when you think about class definition, we look, look at self-perceptions. Um, so you'd ask people what class they're in in a survey, like the general social survey, um, because it's not always clear, right? You could be a plumber who makes $300,000 a year. You could be a professor of history who that makes less than make your other, <laughs> uh, your colleagues, right? Most and, definitely not, yeah. <laughs> and, and that together... Um, uh, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, there's a little bit of spillage between the different uh, social categories. Um, and the, and so I think that's why it's really like together, how does your environment look? And these are the three kind of intervening factors. But it's the cultural, social, psychological experience that I think creates the class and the behavior that's associated with it. Right. Yeah. So Igor, if, if I was to ask you, what class are you in? What would you say other than telling me to that's a very impolite and rude question. <laughs> How could you dare? <laughs> I'm in Canada. I mean, we are more sort of open about uh, our, I don't know, actually, if we're more open. We pretend like we're more open uh, in Canada. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think professors, uh, in terms of the income, they're definitely not upper class. Uh, in terms of the education, obviously, they are. I think they are sort of upper middle class in general. That's what most people would probably agree with. But it also depends on several other factors, as Michael just pointed out, like including uh, your upbringing and your parents. Uh, so you can be a plumber uh, or decide to be a plumber, but you come from a very well-educated family, and then uh, that's a completely different uh, or well-off family, and uh, you grow up with certain traditions. I mean, the Michael and I both know colleagues who uh, who are like second or third generation professors, uh, for instance. Uh, but we also know colleagues who are first generation professors, and uh, these are completely different experiences. Uh, these people uh, they they relate to different cultures, um, so you can't really generalize. But on overall, in terms of the immediate ecology that I think professors uh, live in. Uh, at better paid, better funded universities, it would be upper upper middle class. And now, as Michael pointed out, there are some professors in the United States who make less money than a plumber. Yeah. And who have to have three jobs in order to uh, keep swimming. Yeah. And, you probably uh, learned some plumbing skills. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Many other yeah. skills probably as well. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, you think about the uh, some of the precarious em employment situations that people with a ton of education have, right? So there's adjunct positions in, in universities in the U.S. at least, wherein you will be teaching eight classes during a term between like three or four universities with no health care mm -hmm. and you're a Ph.D. Right. And yet your life looks very different than someone with equal education who has a, a you know, a tenured position. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's 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 complex and multifaceted. Um, for for my own class background, I'm pretty firmly middle class growing up, and you know, as things transition, and you end up being at a place like Yale, in a place like the School of Management, where we get paid more relative to our colleagues. Mm. You know, I I definitely feel, you know, the education privilege, but also the um, the resource privilege that comes with being at a you know a business school. Yeah. We're going to, what's, I guess, probably more interesting that we're going to be talking about is people's perceptions around inequality. But I thought before we got into that, we could just talk about what we do know about the state of inequality at the moment. So the general sort of narrative that I have absorbed from society is that um, 
inequality is, you know, getting greater and greater and it's harmful to all dimensions within, within the society, not just the people at the bottom end. So can we just, before we sort of start talking about how people perceive it and whether they're accurate or inaccurate, uh, Michael, can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, how we're doing inequality wise? Is it worse than ever? So, um, you know, there's, there's a little disagreement about that. I think in general, um, when you look across years and across nations, things are, they're not getting appreciably better, that's for sure. Whether or not they're getting worse, um, there's a couple of macro level variables and situations that muddy the waters a bit. Um, you've got globalization, you've got you know, technological advancement that leads to greater growth in some countries and continents more mm. than others. Mm. And so you get a flattening a bit between country effects. Right. But in general, within countries, what you get, even with, you know, growing um, GDPs for faster developing countries, you get a split within countries wherein there's a certain amount of wealth and, um, and capital that gets funneled to people who are at the top, um, mm. at the expense of people below. And then even across countries, you have with globalization, you have countries like the United States, for instance, creating wealth by paying people uh, you know, in other countries less for the work that they're doing right. um, to make the materials that you need. So in general, what we get is this overall effect, even though uh, with globalization and some changes in how things work, inequality in general is becoming, or at least to stay just as bad as it's been since, gosh, I want to say at least the 1980s, maybe even um, 1930s. Right, so at oh, least wow, it's bad. crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. Uh, what is your take on uh, Steven Pinker's argument that pretty much everything is actually getting better uh, on a global scale? I mean, is that what you mean with sort of like maybe there is a distinction between what happens within a country and what happens on the uh, on the global level, and often they're going in different directions. Right. So I think if you if you look at it from a, a different vantage point and you look at so I've seen people look at the bottom. So the, the the fewest amount of resources that individuals have and actually people have more than they ever have had. But you need to factor in, you know, the extra things that people need and the costs of of living um, and how different they are in different cultures. So having X amount of money in the Philippines is different than having X amount of money in London, um, mm. for instance. So if you, you know, if you squint your eyes and you turn your head, um, you can say that, you know, people are doing much better. But I, I think in, you know, and we started by talking about motivated reasoning, this might be um, one of those situations where you see the world that you want to live in rather than the world that you actually live in. Talking, talking about sort of the, the idea of absolute wealth is kind of questionable. <laughs> It's inter- you know, I was interested in this idea that you could have the same amount of absolute wealth, but if it was less than what other people had or more than what other people had, that would be a big factor in how you felt about it. Is there kind of evidence to show that? I mean, that's an idea I've heard, but is that is that actually how humans tend to think? I, I think uh, definitely. I, th- I think that's it's one of those coarse uh, social psychological principles in social comparison. And it works in ec- the economic domain, particularly. Mm. Yeah, you can think about it in terms of I need to know how I'm doing, and right. uh, I'm you know the world is uncertain and scary, and I need to know um, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing 
Am I being rewarded in the right ways, appropriately, in a fair way? So you're, you're constantly comparing your lot to that of others on many dimensions. And, uh, you know, economic resources matter a lot. So it's, it's really natural to compare. So you get, the, you get situations where maybe you started your job during a recession. You're paid $4,000 less than the person who was just hired uh, because the recession kind of had an upturn mm. and that's going to matter to you a yeah. lot because that person is in the similar circumstance as you. And just because of these external circumstances, you get paid less and, and that's going to lead to a whole host of outcomes related to uh, negative job satisfaction. It might drive divisions between you and that person. It, it might lead you to trust the uh, institution a little bit less as a result. I think now would be a good time to to talk about how good people are at assessing where we're at with inequality because it's from the, some of the papers you sent over, it seems like, well, I guess it was based in America, but Americans aren't very good at working out what the reality in terms of uh, the, the inequality in the States is at the moment. Um, and that breaks down a little, a little bit more into to different ethnic groups and things. But overall, can you tell us, Michael, just uh, how bad are people at assessing the levels of inequality in the States? So uh, they're they're terrible. They're they're horrible at it. Right. Um, so so um, you know in in some of our past work and in the past work of others, you know, this this really simple methodology where you ask people how unequal is it, and then you compare it to the you know the wealth data, the income data that you have, and um, we've done it in terms of mobility. So how mobile are people in terms of social class? And then more recently, we did it in terms of race. So you know, for a typical black family. If a white family is $100, how much does that black family have on average in terms of wealth? Mm. The answer is closer to $10 Jeez. Uh, currently, Whoa. but people think um, $90. Maybe oh. quickly clarify for our listeners that in the United States, the notion of race and the notion of uh, social class and uh, just generally like very strongly intertwined so that often you... It's very, and, and both of them involve the notion of inequality, which may not be the same in other countries around the world. That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, our economic system is built on a, a, a racial caste system, you know, and, and built on chattel slavery in which, you know, black Americans were wealth, you know, hundred, not too long ago. So this, what you need is, you know, you actually need some policy to undo that kind of massive inequality. That yeah, which in is interesting. History. Yeah, because as as you were saying in one of your papers, like that's why people being unaware of the inequality between a black Americans and white Americans is so problematic. Because if someone puts forward a policy saying to, well, let's address this, if it's not a problem people recognize in the first place, that's not going to get a lot of support. That's right. And, you know, I, I, I would say that, you know, we... And, and this is true of, you know, we talked about liberals and conservatives. This is true of both liberals and conservatives. In many ways, we want to live in a society that is fair, right? Being in a society that is fair is like, you know, it's really important to our American values, right? We have this American dream where people get to do, uh, they get to come here as immigrants, right? They get to uh, do the things and show their talents that really make them who they are. And we reward exceptional ability with outcomes right having the white picket mm. fence and mm. this is a this is a fairy tale it turns out but we hold, adhere to this belief so much that we're willing to you know see society even though you know if you look if you look really closely you can see the inequality it's it's quite stark it's mm. quite in your face actually but we are so motivated to hold on to this this belief um, that we will, you know, say society is far more equal than it actually is um, to such a degree that it's going to 
you know, sabotage any potential aggressive policies that might, um, and that economic analyses show, um, you know, might change things. So what's what's making people disbelieve what they see in front of them? Is is it because they like the idea? So say you're doing well in society. Do you, you therefore going to like the idea that it's fair because it reflects well on you? Or is it because you could also... I mean, we often hear in the UK about we get confused why lots of working class Americans often vote for parties that have policies that don't really, you know, tax them in a way that might be helpful. But there's this narrative over here that it's because of this idea of the American dream, like people are led to believe that you don't want to tax the rich because you could be rich one day. Um, so what is driving these these sort of inaccurate sort of assessments of, of inequality? So, so I think all those things can play a role. So, uh, you know, there's definitely this, if you've made it, you have these anecdotes that are really powerful that come from your family that say that hard work prevails. Yeah. You know, you, so you point to those anecdotes and you say, well, this is probably true of not just me, but true of most Americans, because it fits our narratives, fits our broader narratives, fits our fairy tales and the like. There's also this, you know, this way in which, you know, so if things are motivated, you can create your whole life in a, in a way that's motivated. So you can engineer your surroundings to be around similar people. Um, this is more related to the, to the other paper I sent you, but, you know, how mm-hmm. we affiliate with people of the same class. We live in neighborhoods and attend schools with people, with kids whose parents come from the similar class background. Um, our neighborhoods and uh, social relations are designed in ways that keep us, um, you know, connected to the people who are who share similarities to us in terms of our economic and education fortunes. I think there's an assortative mating finding wherein you share the education of the person that you marry, and that correlation is, I think, a, a 0.6 or something like that. Mm. Um, so it's quite high. And then, and then there's also this um, aspirational piece to it, you know, this, mm. this idea that I will support any number of policies that are making very wealthy people wealthier in exchange for maybe the potential of achieving that wealth one day, mm. maybe right. also for the potential to, you know, hold on in terms of uh, white, poor white Americans, my elevated racial status. So if a party that is allowing wealthy people to be wealthier is also a pro-white party, then I have some status advantages that are based on race that Mm -hmm. I buy into um, when I support those policies that enrich uh, wealthier folks. So, Michael, you also looked at uh, who uh, is better and who is worse at overestimating uh, the inequality in America, uh, as well uh, for social uh, and uh, racial inequality. So what did you find? Right. So the uh, the worst group by far, and the, the other groups are a little bit um, more similar, is um, wealthier white Americans. So these are white Americans who make over, what did we say, I think $100,000 in the uh, annually in income. Those mm-hmm. folks were the most likely to overestimate equality in society between uh, mm-hmm. black and white Americans. And so it's this this is more evidence for this, this anecdote-based kind of explanation, right? I've made it. My status is, um, you know, is fairly one. And so I don't, um, to say that things are unfair would be to undermine my status and to undermine the American dream more broadly. So I'm going to say that society is more equal than it is. Right. Michael, what is the policy application of this uh, uh, misperceptions of inequality? What can we take away from that? What uh, do you think can be done on a societal level? 
so I think that it's a major barrier. So misperceiving inequality is a major barrier to any kind of progressive social change. America's got a lot of problems right now, but our economic problems are ensured to be at the bottom of the list if we think things are more equal than they actually are. And that may be discounting how important a lack of resources is to people's everyday lives. So there's there's tons of potential solutions to income inequality. There's one with tons of popular support. For instance, there's a job guarantee program. So anybody who wants to work gets employed. We have an infrastructure problem in the United States with roads Mm -hmm. and um, plumbing and the like. And there's people who are willing to work who could work on those problems. So you're you're, killing two birds with one stone there. That has public support as well. But we're not likely to have any momentum for a policy like that if people are not aware of the economic situation that we currently have. So I, I view it as a major barrier to any kind of progressive policy having widespread support. Right. But one thing that I was also thinking about is uh, this notion of dehumanization. So if you think that uh, everybody uh, is fine and it's just up to you to work up to the top, you would view potentially those who are not as well off as you, as less competent, uh, less less warm, uh, just somebody who is uh, abusing the system instead of working hard on making it just like you did. Uh, right. And sort of like the disenfranchisement uh, of the poor uh, and uh, sort of like psychological consequences, social psychological consequences of this uh, lay views about uh, the level of inequality in the society for uh, how you would then treat, uh, recognize, first of all, and treat uh, the people who are different from you. Right. I, I mean, I agree with you. And I think, you know, one, one of the inputs for empathy is the level of harm being done to other people. So you don't, you don't perceive that harm. It's a, it's a path towards dehumanization. It's a path towards a lack of considering others' minds. If you think what they're experiencing is not that big a deal. But, but also that it's, um, I think, Igor, what... I picked up on from what you were saying is kind of if it's a well, a meritocracy, if it's a purely fair society that you know anyone can make it, then the people that don't is because they you know they 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 lack something. So if you're at the bottom of the pile, it's because you deserve to be. So that's the the sort of dark side of the idea of society being seen as being fair. People that haven't done that's well. Right deserve to not do well that's right yeah and and conversely people that have done really well should be celebrated and praised because you know they must have something special about them to get to the top yeah so that's you know that's a you know that's a great um or it's it's like a um it's a well-traveled road towards like leaving things the way they are right um Mm. yeah it might be hard for people at the bottom but you know that's the position that they find themselves in everybody has the equal opportunity to get where i'm at hmm now, so no, no, one thing that uh, uh, I, I think uh, this leads very well into is this idea of how, how well are we able to recognize if somebody comes from, let's say, a, a middle class, a low class, uh, from one uh, social group or another social group. And uh, Michael, you've done some work on that as well. And uh, uh, I think uh, Charles and I would like to know a little bit more about what did you find? Like, how accurate are we with figuring out what class people belong to? Right. So um, I would say that most of this work is done in the States. 
Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I should preface it with saying that anytime I talk to people from the UK about this work, um, they say, well, of course you can tell a person's social class. (laughs) Yeah, um, it's pretty right with them. Yeah. Um, That's one of the things I like about America is it's a little bit less obvious. Um, right. So it's also also very interesting uh, to connect it to the previous topic. Of, well, it's like uh, there is a paradox because I think uh, uh, your work, and you'll get to that in a second, suggests that people uh, are able to recognize inequality in the sense of perceiving other people's quality. Well, nevertheless, they do tend to believe that the society is very equal. Right, right, right. So, so it, I guess it would be the way I would explain it is mm-hmm. that you can tell differences between you and other people interpersonally, and you know, not not perfectly, but above chance accuracy. But that difference, so the 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 real material difference you see between you and others, is much smaller than it actually is. Is your perception right? So, or maybe you're just closing your eyes, uh, or, or like you only look at the immediate environment, and uh, right. like. Uh, it, it yeah. cannot really inform your general picture about your uh, sort of uh, state of the society. Right. Or maybe, yeah, that's right. So that it's possible that the people that you interact with are close um, to you. And so that informs your estimates of how yeah. the rest of the world lives. I, I wanted to ask, <laughs> in one of your papers, something jumped out at me and I didn't quite get it. And I thought, you know, this would be a good time to just get to the bottom of it. You, there are these various ways that people kind of sample someone else and and then they're asked to decide what class they think they're from. And some interesting ones like about looking at shoes and things, which I thought was quite interesting. But there was one I didn't understand was something like asking people to do Cockney impressions, like impressions yes. of London. Yes. What was, tell me about that. I don't know. What, how does that work? <laughs> So that, that's just an experiment, right? So right. they're trying to, um, in, in part, this is why uh, I, I don't do experiments where we, we imitate dialects because it doesn't feel, uh, I guess, ecologically valid. Sure. But that's what some people did. Right. Where they, you know, they have a person speaking in more standard English and then um, less standard English. And that's the manipulation. So it's the same person speaking with two different dialects, one that's higher status and one that's lower status. And then you get perceptions on the part of the you know the experiment participant about so how class. convincingly did they produce that other accent that isn't of their class so that's the question right we don't yeah. have the materials but um i mean i would be skeptical um in that experiment strike a light geezer it'd be like uh, mary poppins you know dick van dyke on the rooftops <laughs> no, i would have loved to see that i would like to be a fly on the wall in that experiment so my, my favorite study in this work in linguistics is um William uh, Labov, who um, looked at department stores, who so went to different department stores that are, you know, uh, tend to be in different class neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And he asked people to pronounce words, you know, just by asking them, you know, where is the men's section? And they'd say the fourth floor. And he would look for dropping consonants. But then he would ask them again, like, which floor? And then the folks who were from the working class department store would change the way they spoke to... You know, articulate the words in more standard forms to indicate that they were aware of this dialect difference that mm. was based on class. Mm. Um, this is a 1960s study that's my favorite. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and the middle, middle class didn't change the dialect, right? Right. Uh, they changed it less if you asked again. Would it depend on the, the questioner? Probably. 
Probably. And I think it was him. So I think it was uh, Labov himself right. who was asking the questions. But you can imagine they, uh, the department store workers only get that question from middle class shoppers who are coming in. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So it sounds like from, from what you're saying that we're good at, we're pretty good at this. So we're at least better than chance, uh, right? So like, I want to say like if 50-50 is the, um, if we're doing like a guess between working and middle class, yeah. if that's the, um, if that's chance, then we're looking at about 60% um, accuracy, okay. um, but but 60% accuracy with very little information. Um, so in the study, um, in our two, 2017 paper, it's seven words spoken out of context. Wow. Um, that's enough to get 60% accuracy. So it's, so it's a little bit of accuracy that's above chance, but it's very little information um, in the voice in this study that, uh, that allows for that. Similar size effect when you look at 60-second interactions. Yeah. It's a correlation of 0.23-ish between perceived social class and actual social class right. interacting for 60 seconds. Uh, but suppose if you're interacting with someone, actually, you're getting a lot of information. Like you're, you're, you get to see their shoes, which seems important, apparently. Uh, <laughs> you right. get to see their face, you get to see their clothes, and you hear them speak. Um, so it's quite a lot of information, actually, 60 seconds, isn't it? Yeah, so I would say that I often go back and forth on this between like taking down the amount of information to just the voice Maybe that's harder, but maybe also that's easier when you're dealing with a, sort of the wealth of information you have in an inter interaction. Right. How you might be looking at many different things that create more noise than signal. So there's this work from uh, Nick Rule and Thora Bjorn's daughter over at University of Toronto that looks at just facial perceptions. So uh, you can imagine, right, if you are more middle class, you've been healthier across your lifespan, so you're less weathered in terms of your face. And so wow. it could be a possible signal of class. And I think their correlation is closer to 0.4. When you decay the stimuli to just look at the eyes, look at just the face, that's just, actually a better signal than the voice. Yeah, just the eyes. Just like the weathering around your right. eyes and like the crow's feet. I wonder how that now changes with the you know hip, uh, emergence of hipsters and sort of like uh, <laughs> having something like the, the hipster beers and sort of yeah. sli slightly rough look. You can't uh, fake weathering uh, though. I mean, weathering takes you know some real commitment. You know, to being a hipster, you have to spend sort of years <laughs> outside in a field. <laughs> I know, I'm just joking. But, I, I, but at the same time, uh, I, ca I can see that uh, some of the signals obviously uh, are greatly subject to a cultural change and how, I mean, obviously you can just say, take the uh, signals from the 60s and say, well, do they apply? Uh, yeah. And assume that they would apply equally yeah. right now. It's, it's, it's right. highly culture specific. Right. And, and you know, some of, the, some of the intentional signaling that happens is, you know, in response to, you know, the formal ways in which we signaled class in the past, right? Like um, Mark Zuckerberg comes to mind in his um, hoodie wardrobe, for instance, right? And it's yeah. like um, the argument is for efficiency and, um, you know, because he doesn't want to have decision fatigue. That's a hilarious argument. But um, what I, what I yeah. would say is, is probably happening is, you know, he's worth a ton of money and he doesn't want to walk into rooms and remind everybody about yeah. the wide difference between what he makes and what they do. Yeah. Right. You know, um, that, that's funny, that decision fatigue thing. Have you, have you seen The Fly with Jeff Goldblum? Oh, um, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Doesn't he have... The classic, yeah. He has a wardrobe, I think, which all has the same outfit in it. And he says... Yeah. So I think, I think Zuckerberg might have been watching some old Jeff Goldblum films. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, actually had a big impact on me. I was thinking, that's a great idea. And then I got to the end of the movie. I was like, 
And maybe not. It's maybe not. <laughs> Thank goodness for Jeff Goldblum. You've saved us all from some terrible experiments. Um, so why are we so good? Why it sounds like we're quite good at this. And yeah, I mean, we seem to be better at it than chance. So there must be some reason why we've developed this skill. So it's it's good in some ways and bad in others. So the huh. the um, the adaptive portion of it is that we've always been good at seeing who has what status, and that's yeah. adaptive because when we're living in groups, you you know you ha- you want to know who has resources because yeah. that person is an important person to have an alliance with if you need some help. Yeah. Um, so you know any number of dimensions of of status you get accurate perceptions probably because of that need that developed in our earlier cultural environments now the cost though happens when you think about job interviews you think about people's potential to you know move up and down in the class hierarchy that's when this accurate perceptual component gets in the way of the sort of the leveling of class. Right, it's the flip society. side. Yeah. yeah, the flip side is that if you know who's high status, then you will share your resources with other people who are similarly high status because that status rides along with a host of other psychological perceptions like that they're more competent, that they are um, you know, more agentic, that they are more similar to you, that creates more barriers to the ability of people who are traversing classes in their, you know, their work ac- outcomes trying to move up. There's this great ethnography called Pedigree by Lauren Rivera that, um, you know, talks about people trying to get consulting jobs and how there's a lot of job interviews that go along the lines of, is this the kind of person that I want to spend a lot of time with? And what that is code for is class, right? Mm. Is this someone mm. who likes the same things as me, same kind of music, right. the same kind of culture? And that creates barriers for people who are actually trying to be openly mobile. Yeah. This is totally random. Reminds me of the Kingsman movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like yes, a moving no, up right. in the class right. uh, and right. uh, how hard it was. And, uh, <laughs> you, have to have, you have to have really unique abilities. You have to do way more than anybody else uh, would of, uh, of the upper class in order to be able to move up. That's right. That's right. It's interesting because you could, that question, I've, I've never thought of that question about, could you spend time with this person? I've always thought of that as um, a kind of enlightened question for a company to ask a, of you, you know, just think about the group dynamics. Is this going to work? But actually it's quite, it has a sort of sinister undertow <laughs> when you, when you frame it like that. Right, right. It, well, when you don't define it clearly enough, yeah. what happens is people prioritize, and this is this goes broadly, not just to class, but you know, race and culture. Right? Like you say, yeah. is this the kind of person that you'd like to work with? And we know from all the research and decades of social psychology that that person is going to be similar to you. You're going to answer that question in terms of like, do you want to hang out with this person? And then that you right. know, that gets in the way of any of the other initiatives that the the company has in terms of. Um, you know, diversity and inclusion. So this this gift that we have for being quite good at um, assessing people's class is actually maintaining the sort of barriers of the classes. That's right. Yeah. That's quite depressing, isn't it, really? Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes it is. <laughs> yeah. Eagle, do you think we should be uh, diving into the specific... Yeah, let's move on to another rela- very related topic. So, Michael, we talked about the uh, signaling and try to recognize class of others. But another uh, work that both you and I have been uh, heavily involved in is trying to see what are the implications of being 
uh, of growing up or just living in different classes. And sort of, uh, and some some work suggests that it may be more of an ecological adaptation. Other work suggests that they're just like different cultures. And I just would like this at the end. I'll try to uh, take this a little bit apart. And just uh, and also because just this last week uh, a new paper came out to try to uh, replicate uh, the famous study by uh, Shoda and Michelle, the marshmallow test, mm. where it seems like the uh, general implication of the replication are such that a lot of what has previously been described as the effect of uh, your know, delay of gratification on the future success in life. And I'll explain that to our listeners in a second, uh, but uh, can be actually uh, closely linked to the notion of class differences and upbringing uh, in the environment of the families. So why don't we dive a little bit into that? Uh, the first thing that I would just like to ask you, Michael, is uh, what have you observed in your research or can you describe to our listeners also how does class impact behavior? So it's likely to be, you know, hugely influential in, a, in across a number of domains. So we spoke a little bit in terms of how it changes your perceptions of the world, right? So right. your position in society is going to change your vantage point and make you think about and explain the world in different ways. So in the first study, we talked about higher status. So higher income, higher class people are going to be maybe less aware of inequalities, uh, and more motivated to think of society as fairer, you know, expanding on that, that leads to a host of explanations wherein people who are higher in social class, if they're applying their own beliefs about, you know, meritocracy and opportunity, may think of individuals as greater agents of defining and creating their own positive outcomes for themselves. They become more dispositionally oriented as a result. Um, whereas lower class, relatively lower class, working class folks, become because the environment's so powerful, you become uh, more attuned to explaining the world in terms of the social forces, environments, cultures, communities around you that influence you. So you become more contextual, more situational in your explanations of the world. And so this broad-based difference in how you see the world then can carry over to a host of interpersonal domains as well in terms of your behaviors towards other people, you can imagine if you are more situationally, more contextually oriented, someone is suffering, you might be more aware of that, more attuned to that, more likely to perceive the suffering of others and be motivated to help. Um, so in some of our prior work, that's, that's what we find. And then um, beyond that, you can also you know, apply that to your know, sort of general explanations for how you think about groups and society. So yeah. like, how do I think about other groups and, you know, when they achieve or not, is that because of them and their traits? So their pathological traits, mm -hmm. um, upper, relatively upper class people might think that, um, whereas relatively lower class people may think more first in terms of circumstance. So one thing that also often comes up uh, in the discussion in academia of this topic is this uh, inherent uncertainty that is linked to resource scarcity in the uh, less uh, affluent uh, strata of the population in uh, lower class environments as compared to more uh, sort of safe, stable, uh, middle, upper middle class environments where, and I think what you just said is uh, very closely linked to that. Like if, if the environment is stable, then uh, of course I can always assume that this is this person's uh, 
behaviors because of his trait, uh, and he will always behave like that. I just need to look at him once, and I can right away inform what this person is like. And when the environment is totally unstable, you can be just like Supan uncertain about that. Could it be because of the situation in this moment or could it be about some underlying trait, right? And um, have you considered uh, some of this type of thinking in uh, in your work? Or it's like, what is your general thinking about this uh, notion of uncertainty here? Right. So, uh, you know, I think it can come from any number of sources, right? So it right. could be totally cultural in origin too, um, right. wherein you learn to think situationally because the people around you have norms to think that way. But I like right. this, like this momentary scarcity kind of explanation too, as a additional pathway to thinking this way, right? The environment says that it matters more and that things are right. more uncertain in this context. And that just makes you write more when you, when you think of the environment. And so then you learn to go to those explanations more often, whereas in an environment where you have more control in general, the environment less matters less. So you come to think that and be right when you think of dispositions more often. Right. I think both can be. Yeah. The reason I bring it up uh, is because sometimes uh, there is this sense, and maybe that's to some extent uh, our liberal bias, uh, that our lower class uh, is the victim. And it's only the victim, and they are deficient. It's not like obviously they are the victim if they are oppressed by others, but that they are deficient, and we need to fix them. Uh, and uh, and uh, I think both uh, this kind of culture and ecological approaches, uh, which are closely connected, of course, uh, would suggest that well, actually they are not deficient. They just like they do what may be a adaptive for them. Uh, for instance, the, uh, there is a set of findings suggesting that low-class kids, in particular, don't wait as long uh, and that uh, they are more impatient. And from the ecological perspective, if your environment is uncertain, why should you be planning for the future? You don't know right. what will happen to 10 minutes from now. But like, and, you know, like, thinking about what will happen five years from now is completely unreasonable. So it, it's actually very rational to maybe yeah. take a cookie now instead of waiting for five cookies uh, uh, 10 minutes from now. I'm exaggerating, but that, that, so goes the argument. And of course, the cultural argument goes like that, too. It's like you say yeah. that we need to make the uh, working class kids uh, be like middle class. But why do, uh, in order for them to be uh, successful in academia, like to go to college and uh, succeed at completing college, a lot of working class kids don't complete college, even if they start. So affirmative action programs don't work as well. But maybe a different approach would be to figure out how can we change the environment in college so that it's more welcoming of the culture of the working class kids. And that sometimes uh, is neglected, sort of like uh, Hazel Marcus, Nicole Stevens and others have uh, have done uh, some work on that, right? Right, that's right. Yeah, and you know, I would say that you can do the flip side, right? So we often problematize the lower resource, lower education contexts and behaviors. Um, and right. I think we need to fix those, and that's a mistake. Right. And we problematize less the um, you know the higher social class, um, more elite context that you know in some ways they're worse at perceiving inequality, like we talked about. Yeah. Maybe less compassionate, less likely to allow for you know struggle, e- empathy for tougher circumstances. And I don't know if it's great to live in a world where people lack those kinds of traits. Um, and then, you know, thinking about 
the ways in which the behaviors and social affiliation patterns of relatively upper class people cut off mobility by constraining relationships and networks to same class interactions. You know, we should really be asking about why more elite contexts are the way they are and if they're best designed for the society that, you know, maybe we want to live in. Yeah, I mean, like they are much more self-focused, and so even yeah. if yeah. you you could push it even further, a lot of the things that you described this more contextual way of thinking of approaching others is, and so the topic of a uh, podcast in many way linked to the what philosophers talk about when they talk about wisdom, sort of recognizing limits of your knowledge because you. Pay attention to others. Consider diverse perspectives. Uh, be more compromise-oriented. Uh, recognize that things change over time. Those type of principles are often viewed as fundamental virtues, as philosophers would call them. And it seems like, based on uh, your prior work as well as my work, that um, uh, middle class focusing so much on themselves instead of the others are less likely to engage in this process. It's like they, they lack the wisdom, even though they're the one making the decisions. Yep. Uh, it's yep. just, uh, just really, of course, this is constraints, domain specific to our listeners. We are not saying that working class people are wiser in general. They're definitely not wise about making political decisions. This does make, uh, because that's not the domain in which they have expertise in. But so they talk about do you want to uh, just yeah. expand a little bit on, on that paper and just tell us roughly what you found? Because that, that was quite surprising. Um, and I think it would be good to just go into that for a minute. Yeah, I mean, like, again, if you take this kind of, take a step back and uh, look at uh, how, for instance, intelligence uh, tests have been developed, they've been developed to identify uh, working class kids from middle class kids. A lot of intelligence tests uh, were developed to show class differences at the beginning in France. And uh, and uh, mental uh, health, uh, me- uh, mental deficiencies, as I would have called it back then. Since then, a lot of research has been showing that uh, higher class is often linked to better reasoning, and better abilities to think through the situation, the logic, abstract problem solving. And um, what we tried to do, we tried to figure out, uh, well, if you go beyond these forms of reasoning, those forms of reasoning are very nice, very important, of course, but they do have this kind of middle-class culture feeling to them. And in everyday life, we also need other forms of reasoning that are more likely to involve considering others' perspectives, recognizing that you may not have enough information, consider uh, how things change, consider different ways how situation may unfold. And these forms of reasoning are not uh, a part of the standard intelligence testing, even though they are more closely linked to sort of the Aristotelian principle of wisdom. And so we looked at class differences in those, looking both at different states in the United States, uh, like convenience samples, which means that it's uh, we didn't randomly pick people from states, but we tried to match them on different characteristics. And then also looked at uh, in-lab studies where we gave people different scenarios, asked them to reason about that, and then uh, coded their responses for what forms of reasoning came out, what themes came out. And turns out that uh, uh, less educated people and people from less affluent states 
And even uh, if you look at the level of situations, situations in which you have like less status, less power than the other person, you're more likely to engage in these principles. So very systematic pattern, at least in the United States, uh, this wise reasoning ideas, uh, than if you are uh, from the middle class, if you have higher education. So it's very consistent with Michael's prior work and my prior work where we uh, looked either at social cognition or I looked at some of the more abstract cognition about sort of how people predict change from low and middle class. Uh, so the common uh, uh, take-home message there is that for interpersonal affairs, uh, there is this uh, advantage of the working class people, people from the less educated, uh, lower income uh, areas. Uh, we did not find this to be the case when we looked at reasoning about political issues there was no difference. And as I said earlier, this kind of makes sense because that's not the domain that uh, a working class uh, would have any advantage on because they don't discuss them on everyday level. It doesn't help them to deal with their everyday problems. It's not part of their culture. So it it sounds like essentially working class people have, because of their environment, have the need for wise reasoning thrust upon them. So they, they, they have to think in that way to make the best of the environment that they're in. And then flip side, wealthy people who have sufficient resources insulate themselves from uncertainty, largely. That's what money can do for you. And therefore can prevent you from developing the kind of skills that we're calling or kind of way of uh, reasoning that we're calling wise reasoning. But it's not really, in a way, why would they have those skills? They don't need those skills. They can control their environment sufficiently. So right. they kind of have a, a suitable fit in the way they think as, as well. Well, yeah. So, I mean, a suitable fit for their local environment, yeah. but, a, but a challenge for because those people are also making a lot of decisions for the rest Which of us. Which affects other people. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. I mean, I guess that just, you know, you're right on a super local level it would make sense that they would develop those kind of uh, ways of thinking about things. But you're right. Obviously, the decisions they take have a a much uh, bigger reach than their local environment. Yeah. There's also, uh, I think it's a high toll to be uh, self-centered and egocentric. It seems easier, but actually it's not. Because if you constantly have to focus on yourself and uh, think about sort of like how to... Uh, sort of maximize your own utility, as some economists like to call it, uh, then uh, in, instead of uh, be connected to other people, then you start defining uh, your happiness through uh, your own achievements. You, you forget that actually it's often linked to other people. And it's a much higher risk type of approach if you think about it instead of the the one where you distribute uh, your utility through your networks of other people. You have a richer, more contextual approach to the world. I I like to think about it in terms of like in science too, right? Our approach to science is, you know, the system is all created by people who are relatively elite. And, you know, you can see how that affects how science has progressed for decades, right? It's Maybe less collaborative than it should be. Maybe less. Yeah. Maybe, maybe more focused on individuals and their outcomes rather than focused on you know the broader approach to gaining knowledge and doing it together. It's focused on awards rather than uh, maybe it should be more focused on you know the things that we learn uh, moving forward. And it's uh, 
kind of surprising maybe uh, on the one hand to think of the primary place where we create knowledge through science um, has this feature of, of not always being, you know, sort of the wisest system to create that knowledge. Yeah, for sure. For sure. One thing I wanted to bring up uh, before we start wrapping up, uh, uh, I mentioned uh, when we transitioned to this episode, uh, this uh, most uh, recent uh, attempt to uh, replicate the famous marshmallow study. And I think that's something that we may want to just briefly touch on because uh, I would love to hear your uh, thoughts on this, uh, Michael. So the marshmallow marshmallow test for our listeners was the famous study, uh, longitudinal study, demonstrating that if kids, uh, young kids, uh, presented with uh, an option to pick uh, a marshmallow, that hence the marshmallow, or some other favorite uh, uh, dessert like a cookie or something else. Uh, one now, or if they wait for, let's say, up to 15 minutes, uh, then they can uh, uh, get a two later, or the more later, more than one later. The researchers looked at how long kids waited, and then this degree uh, of waiting uh, was a predictive of subsequent uh, academic achievement later on in life. And uh, it's a very nice demonstration of that this kind of the ability to delay your gratification uh, has some fundamental impact uh, for uh, your later success in life. Now, most recently, uh, this work there are some limitations of that earlier work. It was done on a smaller scale, and uh, there is a very sort of more elite-oriented uh, uh, sample, I would say. And now uh, researchers tried to conceptually replicate it. It is not identical to the prior study, so the prior study still holds, but it's a slightly different. Uh, there's just a slightly different approach. Um, that people uh, did not let uh, kids wait for up to 15 minutes, only up to seven minutes. So there are some limitations because of that. But in this conceptual replication, they found the fact it was a bit smaller, well, quite a bit smaller, but it was still there. However, when they included uh, various additional covariates, for instance, a home environment of the child at the the time one, uh, or uh, some other social uh, markers uh, later in life, uh, the fact almost completely washed away. There was no effect of this kind of delaying uh, uh, the wait uh, for uh, so that you can get uh, two instead of one rewards uh, on your academic achievement. And moreover, they found that what it really matters if you waited at least 20 seconds. If you wait more than 20 seconds, there was not much of an improvement uh, in terms of uh, later success uh, in life, in terms of academic achievement when you're 15. But it's really like if you get uh, try to get something now, it's almost impulsive or almost impulse control, or wait at least 20 seconds. That's where it was a, a big difference. So I was just wondering, I don't know, Michael, what you're thinking about this. I mean, it seems to be... Uh, that, again, this is another example where class uh, is a, it's a beautiful demonstration of the class effects. But what are your thoughts on this? You know, I, I think, uh, you know, in many ways, it's, um, it, it, you know, it's, it's gaining more knowledge the way science should be doing it. And I don't, you know, the, the um, Shoda and, and Michelle who did the original study, you do the original study, you follow the people that you follow, and they happen to be right. kind of constrained in terms of their, their, their economic starting point. And maybe the, 
maybe the weakness of the original study is making claims more broadly than maybe you should, right? To think that delay would mean something across the, you know, the subcultures that we have in the United States is, is a bit of a leap, right? This mar- the relationship that you have to rewards is likely to vary as a function of how available rewards, uh, rewards are in the environment in general. Um, right. So, um, you know, like, like I, th- I, I buy the notion that social class would play a huge role in how you think about rewards, uh, it's certainly totally tied up into how people perceive, you know, macro level awards on a societal scale now. And it totally influences how you, you know, relate to other people in fundamental ways. So that environment's, you know, is, is a constant, constant influencing force, I would, I would, I would, ma- I would imagine over the life course. Right. Yeah. And I think like, uh, yeah, it's like to some extent, it seems like uh, if, if the uh, paper didn't get as much popularity and uh, there was not a subsequent book that Walter Michel is a bestseller, a New York Times bestseller written, maybe it wouldn't be such a big deal, but because there was such a great emphasis on it and some people started developing policies uh, based on that, uh, this kind of correction and sort of thinking, well, maybe it's not about some kind of metacognitive processes that differ between the kids, but it's about immediate impulse. And maybe it's it's a more complex set of issues that deal with self-regulation um, uh, rather than just this kind of delay gratification that we need to consider. Right. Yeah, very, very interesting. Uh, um, yeah, sorry, I was just... It's funny because there's been a few few sort of famous studies that people have sort of had another look at uh, more recently, and it's quite it's quite a strong. People get a really strong reaction. Like it seems quite personal when it's found out that one of these studies in some way could have been done better, and it seems very personal when it's in psychology rather than say it was in physics. People don't seem to take it as personally if you know we've actually you know. Uh, honed this experiment and we've you know found that the w- wavelength of red light actually stretches from this number of nanometers to that people don't get too upset about it and when it's like something about uh i suppose it's because it's about us as humans but people seem to respond yeah. quite emotionally to um when these famous experiments are updated so so it's po- it's possible that the stakes are a bit higher because of the social nature of the work right so right. like the 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 people who it's touched the magnitude of the the reaction is scaled up um, because it's touching policy. It's mm. been in the media. Mm. Um, all of that adds on to the, I think, the emotional reactions that social scientists have when their work, you know, their work feels attacked. And then I, I guess it would also um, relate back to our, our last point about um, wisdom, wherein if this scientific enterprise is about individuals and their right. pursuits and their accomplishments, then you know, a fail to replicate for a study is a personal thing rather than about knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. I am going to ask for some uh, some sort of take-home practical things we can sort of tell people about now. Like, um, so, Michael, what do you think in terms of like how an individual navigates their way in the world? What do you think your work suggests that people should be doing more of or less of or, um, you know, on a practical level? You know, on an everyday level, I would be, I would be excited if people, and and this is an impossible ask, but um, I would be excited if people were more aware of and more realistic about 
the world that we live in and how inequality plays a central role in that and how it's not just sort of the market, you know, working itself out in terms of supply and demand, but it's about some very motivated, very intentional forces that keep people with wealth gaining more wealth and people without it, without it forever and for generations. And I think that, you know, being more intentional about how that is something that's not just the market and something that we could actually change, be making people aware of that. It suggests um, a lot of fundamental, fundamentally different orientations to the way we do politics, um, the way we participate in elections, um, the kinds of policies that, you know, in America, average Americans should be thinking about um, as they move forward in, in, in the world that we're living in. Right. Just being more aware, right? Just being more aware um, being more aware of the actual world that we live in rather than the one that we want to. It's, because people do say quite often, you know, when you talk about inequality, they just go, well, it's just, uh, there's always inequality. Yeah, I mean, it's a big that, thing. It's naturally yeah. there, right? Yeah. And it's not. It's, it's, it's a product of people making choices about the economy. So, so fundamentally, you're saying it's a, people need to think differently about the sort of the iron cast law idea of inequality, you know, inequality people do have this sense inequality is an inevitable fact of whenever you know large numbers of people gather in a society you'll have inequality and you're saying that's not the case and that's not how people should think about it or maybe like another possibility to think about it is that uh, even if inequality is there because there is social comparison and we we just can't stop comparing ourselves as social species social animals nevertheless uh, being aware of this inequality and uh, working against it, it would be something that we need to be constantly considering and constantly reevaluating. We can't rest just and say, well, because there is inherent inequality uh, as part of the so social uh, structure of uh, human societies, uh, we, we can just let it be. Igor, you know, um, in terms of the, the sort of finding that working class people are uh, more effective at wise reasoning than middle class people, is there something something that people can take away from that? Should, you know, is there, you know, we probably all consider ourselves middle class, I would have thought. Is there something that we can learn from, from that finding? Well, like maybe going back to this idea of dehumanization and our sort of like, uh, we often view working class uh, or people who are not as educated, who don't have uh, as much wealth as, uh, even if we don't do it intentionally or consciously, we, nevertheless in our behavior, we often show signs of uh, disrespect. We view them as less of a human being, but actually the findings suggest that if anything, we should be listening to them more often than not. Uh, that uh, they are not only, the, yes, they are victims of the social stratification that uh, we live in, but at the same time, there is a great wealth of insights that they may contribute, bring to the table. Mm. And uh, instead of viewing them only as some, some like, or, or predominantly as inferior, we should uh, consider their strength uh, that we can build on. Build on when we create environments uh, for that, that are inclusive uh, of people from more diverse backgrounds. And build on also when we just interact with them. Mm. Even when we feel uncomfortable, uh, because they are different from us or because we may not feel like we would want to have a beer or whatever drink you prefer uh, with the person uh, because uh, they don't share, at least on the, on the surface, they may not feel like they share our interests. 
Um, so that would be another take home yeah. message there, I think. So I think uh, maybe uh, we got to the end. I would just say uh, this was this was a great discussion, uh, Michael. This was fantastic. Thank you so much for this illuminating discussion. And I, I'm sorry we took you, uh, we uh, kept you for a little bit longer than we <laughs> promised. But I hope you enjoyed it at least as much as we did. Yeah, a lot um, of fun, guys. <laughs> yes, this was wonderful. To our listeners, uh, please continue uh, rating us on iTunes and provide us feedback with uh, either through Twitter or other channels. We would love to hear from you. We heard from some of you already, and we just uh, want you to spread the word if you like it, and also tell us if there are things that you don't like. <laughs> We'd really appreciate that. We will uh, take a break for uh, a number. For probably a month uh, for the next ep- uh, until our next episode, and then we'll return in August with another set of speakers. Coming Thank soon you. to 2018 summer trailer. Sounds like a blockbuster. It's very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right.